Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 16, In the Foxhole, August 7th, Day 3. Life can change in the blink of an eye. What time is it? So much happens in a trauma unit. I had just traded places with Paula and Pete as we passed in and out of his hospital room, all of us closely watching Archer. His breathing was labored. His eyes were closed. It felt to me like he was far away. I wondered if he was sleeping or what it was like for him what he was thinking, what he was feeling. I realized how intently I had been watching him. And it's all I really wanted to do. I wanted to watch every minute movement and every part of him scanning for maybe some movement that the doctor said was just in our imagination. When I interviewed our daughter, Paula, I had shared the experience with her as we talked about these first days for the first time as part of our look back. I think I was starting to sort of wake up to, like I was beginning to, uh, like I feel like I was completely with it on one hand and completely out of it on the other. Like I... I can remember vividly and I could think clearly on some pieces, but just what I was so focused on. And she had said the same thing. It's just like so like single track minded. I was. Yes, we were single track minded on Archer. His breathing and any movement was occupying all my thoughts. I was also keeping a close eye on the fluid containers collecting the droplets from the chest wall cavities outside his lungs. If his lungs were punctured, as that one doctor, the pulmonologist, said, I didn't understand how we would ever completely drain that area. I mean, wouldn't they continue to leak? What did it mean, a lung puncture? I didn't understand how Archer got that. He dove into the ocean and hit a sandbar with his head. How did he get a puncture in his lung? And I think the pulmonologist had said there were two punctures. How could that be? But they had inserted those large hose-like chest tubes on both sides of his body. I didn't understand how punctures happened. I wondered, how does a lung puncture heal? My mind was swirling, trying to figure things out. You know, even to this day, 
as I piece back the pieces and try to understand more fully about Archer's injury and our trauma around Archer's accident. You know what I also still wonder about? I still wonder about the very person who was then shouldering most of this traumatic event and traumatic experience, Archer. And I guess I may never know. I looked at Archer with his long body banked and propped up on one of his sides, delicately, in hospital-issued pillows, so the chest tubes were not strained or kinked or touched, really, in any way. His top arm dangled down like the end of a rope. I looked for another pillow to try to get up under this suspended hand. I had heard one of the many medical staff in and out of his hospital room comment that it would be easier if they had a rack for Archer. A rack? I cringed. I mean, I knew what they meant, and perhaps it was right to get the most drainage from his lungs using gravity. But that's kind of gruesome, isn't it? I had this flash of this whole pig on a barbecue spit as it rotated. Sick. But that's what it looked like when I first saw him too this morning. Oh, Archer, honey. I'm so sorry. God, I can only imagine. Archer appeared exhausted or something, his breathing very shallow. But he was calm. At least it looked that way. I wondered again what it must be like for him, unable to move, unable to feel anything, unable to talk, to even tell us. Or maybe he could, but he just couldn't, or he didn't want to, or it was just too much energy, or he was trying to figure it out himself. He just didn't know either, you know what I mean? I just didn't know. What does a body feel like that can't feel, but that used to feel? Does it still feel on the inside? It's so confusing to me. When would it feel again on the outside? I was grateful though. So very grateful that he was calm. I looked over on the counter and saw the forms. You remember, the ones the other pulmonologist doctor in the hallway had just told me about that he had left for me. I walked over and scanned them quickly. As my eyes raced over all the boilerplate language looking for the magic words, there they were. They were going to do a thoracostomy. I think that's how they pronounced it. Another? I didn't understand. I'm pretty sure that's what they called that earlier surgery when they put in a chest tube. But how could that be? They already had done that twice. Two chest tubes, one for each lung. A third? I didn't understand. Were they going to jam another one of those hideous fat tubes into the side of Archer's body? Can you imagine? 
a thick plastic tube that was an inch and a half in diameter. That's what that one pulmonologist had told me. I mean, just hold up your thumb and finger and make an inch and a half circle. That's what they wanted to jam into his side a third time. Imagine your skin cut open and that inserted and then threaded into the cavities of your body through your rib cage, cutting through the muscles that hold your ribs together to get to the space between the lungs and the chest wall to drain your lungs. Can you imagine this? It seems so primitive, so barbaric to me, just like draining the pool with a garden hose. Archer's body? He's just 17 years old. The doctor had told me they were performed on an emergency basis, bedside. Oh my God, is this another emergency? It was just last night when they did those surgeries, right? Or when was it that they did those surgeries? Wait a second. What day is this? I had to ask the next nurse who came in. She told me it was Friday. When I asked, she told me without much expression, really, but with a little sort of a TGIF kind of lilt in her voice. She said, oh, it's Friday. But that really wasn't what I was asking. I wanted to know how many days had we been there? I think what I wanted her to say was, oh, honey, it's going to be okay. Yeah, it's hard to lose track of time around here. Or better yet, it would have been nice if she had just hugged me. I mean, someone who has to ask such a basic question like, what day is it? Needs a little support, you know? She could have at least helped me put the timeline in perspective. She could have said, your son was injured on Wednesday. That's two days ago. I could have really used that kind of kindness. But there was not much like that with this trauma staff. I remember wondering, why are these nurses like this? I really didn't know. It was confusing because I had always had an impression of nurses that they were helpful and caregivers. I had some close friends who were nurses and they were helpful and kind. I don't know. Maybe that's just not how it is when they're at work. Or maybe it's a different kind of nurse in a trauma center. Or maybe it's just a different kind of person who becomes a nurse in a trauma center. I signed the forms. I was aware of how much I wanted a hug. Everything was happening so fast. I had so many questions. When was Archer going to get some relief? When would they do that surgery? If it would ease his suffering and get him back to normal, as far as I was concerned, it couldn't be done fast enough. As barbaric as it seemed. 
I turned and walked back to the hospital bed to watch him closely. Oh my Lord, he was in distress again. I had merely turned to walk across the room and things changed that quickly. The machines were starting to go off. They pierced the room. It was loud. Archer opened his eyes, staring straight ahead amidst all that chaos and they looked wild. I raced out into the hallway to get a nurse just as they were running into his room. As I raced back to his bed, I leaned over to get a close look at him face to face. Oh, Archer, my darling, it's going to be all right. I'm going to get our answers, Archer. I'm going to figure this out. Please, please just hang in there, please. I knew from my years of mediating that one of the most helpful ways to work with someone in high conflict is to be there with them and not to sugarcoat or exaggerate, but just call it like it is. Try to bring some calm. I knew I had to calm myself. I looked at Archer. The nurses were on the machines and getting the suction tube pieces ready. I remember it like it was just a moment ago. I took a breath and I said, Archer, we are both frightened, but fear will not help us. It will not help you breathe. It won't help me think. Archer, look at me. Come on, let's breathe together. Let's try. But it was virtually impossible. All the bells and sounds were going off. It was crazy in there. His machines were screaming. The staff was yelling. They began to suction him as I got out of the way. The medical team checked many things, changed the drip bags, and turned many buttons. It was happening with a flurry of activity. Then the air was quiet again, and the regular rhythmic sounds and hums could be heard again. As the staff slowly banked him on his other side with great care and a lot of talk, I stood back to watch. I felt sort of numb. It seemed to take an excruciating long time for them to do this, and Archer's eyes were darting everywhere. He couldn't speak. He couldn't yell, and I could not hold him. I couldn't even touch him. And even if I could, he could not feel it. I kept saying in a slow, steady, and as soothing a voice as I could muster, Archer, they're taking care of you. They know what to do. They know what they're doing. I think I was saying this as much for his benefit as for my own. I realized I had been calling out to him everything I could see they were doing to describe it to him. It was sort of instinctual. It was like I was one of those sportscasters, you know, at a high-stakes soccer game. I had a lot of experience listening to Manchester City games over the years as our boys would wake up even on school mornings at 5 a.m. to watch their favorite team. I knew how to do that. I continued calling out their every move to Archer as he could see nothing nor move his neck but for a few inches, and that was forbidden. I punctuated my reporting with, 
They know what they're doing, Archer. They're making sure the tube on your right side is not pinched. It's going to be okay. Oh my God, it's his foot. I screamed. I could see his left foot was caught under the other foot bent and getting twisted as they were concentrating on turning him and making sure the tubes in his chest were not pulled, kinked or twisted. It was hard to take in every inch of Archer's long six foot two body. They needed to make sure Archer's feet were not pulled, kinked or twisted. I cringed as I truly felt the sensation in my own body of ripped tendons in the top of my feet as I watched, and I wasn't fast enough to stop them. I had this flash of that sort of tiny metatarsal ripping, twisting sensation on the top of your foot, you know, like... Like if you've ever been walking fast in New York City in boots and had the front of your boot get stuck in a city metal grate in the sidewalk as you're mid-stride and, oh, it bends the top of your foot back. Or if you've ever played finger war as a kid, like I would with my brother, and one time he bent my fingers on my hands back so far until I screamed and he wouldn't stop. Yeah, like that, like a ripping or an imagined ripping of your tendons. And it hurts a lot. Oh, Archer, his long size 11 foot had been bent a lot. I know that hurt. Oh my God. I realized he was really too long for the hospital bed. Or the bed wasn't long enough for him. And there were not enough eyes around here. I felt like I had to be on lookout duty. Okay, I would be. I would be the sentinel. I promise you, Archer, that will never happen again, sweetheart. I was beginning to understand a role that was actually needed. Another set of eyes. I then got back to my sports casting, telling Archer, they're making sure your feet are straight now, Arch. I felt I had to assure him after my outburst. I continued, you're in good care, darling. I honestly felt like I had to give assurances to the medical team that I thought we were in good care. But I felt like I was flat out lying as I didn't fully believe it. Or I just wasn't sure. But I had to believe they knew what they were doing because it was all that we had. I felt like we were on a battlefield and this was all we had. And I had to assure Archer because it was all Archer had. Their expertise was his lifeline. How could they have missed his feet? And none of them even said they were sorry. Can you imagine? as they continued to bark commands to each other so that what they did, they did in unison. 
I again whispered to Archer, Archer, they know what they're doing. They're helping you. This will pass, darling. But he was in great distress and looked like a wild animal. I can still see him even now in my memory. Can you imagine this happening to you? And you have no voice, literally, for any type of communication or feedback and no way to move or even to wriggle yourself away, to resist or to fight or to make anything stop in any way. I felt every fiber in my body on fire with alertness. I was on guard. As I look back, I think it was at this moment that subconsciously I told myself or my body that I had to become Archer or those parts of him that he no longer had, like his voice, his feet, his eyes, or at least the range of sight he couldn't have then. And then I said to Archer, it was all I could think of. Arch, imagine, imagine you are breathing. Imagine, come on, your lungs are filling with air. And you are breathing. His eyes were wild. Come on, one breath at a time. Come on, darling. I put every ounce of my own being into my own breath for him. Close your eyes. Use your imagination. You are breathing, Archer. He looked wild in his eyes. I kept deep breathing. Once he was turned and suctioned, the nurses and techs worked quickly and hooked up a canister of oxygen and changed out another tube. I called out their every move to Archer so that he would know what was happening. And he began to settle a bit. He closed his eyes. There seemed to be a moment of relief. It was calm again. I didn't understand what was happening or why any of that happened, but it didn't matter. I looked around our hospital room and literally had this feeling that I just wanted to wall off a space for us, like make a little nest or something for my little baby bird, for myself, so I could think, and for my other baby birds, so we could all feel safe. I wanted to close out all those blaring sounds so we could rest and figure this out. I just wanted to make a nest for us. Have you ever felt so unprotected your babies vulnerable to others who could hurt them. Anything in life, you know, loss of job or their rejection in a relationship or any scary incident. And your instinct is almost overwhelmingly to just draw them home. Come home. 
It was an intense feeling and I felt it in my body too. I realized our home was this hospital room. I had to figure this out. Paula and Petey came back in. Pete with his then girlfriend. I didn't even know what to say to them. So I just put my forefinger up to my lips to let them know it was quiet time. Archer seemed to be resting or out of it, passed out. It was hard to say, but he looked calm and it was quiet. I went and made some notes in my personal journal on the counter. Another nurse came in. I asked her what I could be looking for to anticipate when Archer might be going into distress or anything I could do to prevent him from having something stressful like that happen again. She said flatly that they were watching from another monitor. Oh, I didn't know that. That was sort of a huge piece of information for me because I thought I had to do the watching and go and get them, which is what I had been doing. I then asked her if they anticipated Archer would need more of those oxygen bursts. And she said, he'll be sleeping for some time. How do you know that? I asked. And she looked at me kind of funny. And then she said something about how they gave him CCs or something. And she sort of shrugged her shoulders. I didn't know what she meant or what that was or what a shoulder shrug was about. What do you mean? I asked. She could tell I didn't understand. And she replied, it's in the doctor's orders. I asked, can I see the doctor's orders? I just wanted to understand what she had told me. She paused, like that was a new question, and said, I don't think so. I felt a little flash of anger. I have seen all too many times in my mediation practice how people withhold information from the other side that is crucial to their decision-making process. I admit I am particularly sensitive to information being withheld, and I have worked hard over the years to have people at least consider why full disclosure is so important for informed decisions that the other side needs too. And I said, I don't get that. Why can't I see too? It's my son. And she said, I don't know. I, I just don't think I'm allowed. I was still perplexed. I asked her, but how do you give it to him? I honestly didn't get it. If they gave him something, I mean, he can't eat or drink. And she said flatly, in a drip bag. Oh. I see, I said. I looked around Archer's bed and he had seven drip bags. 
I see, you know, I honestly didn't understand about drip bags. I really didn't. We have never been in an overnight hospital situation before with any of the children and all my pregnancies were easy and I was in and out. So there were never any drip bags. I was learning. It was all so foreign. Hospitals, ICUs, I don't know what they gave him in a drip bag, but he slept. Have you ever been in an ICU, an intensive care unit, and you had no idea what they were doing or giving to your loved one? Or maybe you didn't ask or want to ask or think to ask or care to ask. I guess it was sort of like that for me too, but also not really. I wanted to know what they were doing to him. And somewhere in the back of my thoughts was, did they sedate Archer? While it was quiet, I tucked myself into the far wall of Archer's room while the big kids watched over Archer. It really was all eyes on deck, and my relief troops were there. So I closed my eyes and began to breathe deeply. I was aware I was in overdrive to make things all right for Archer. I knew I needed to settle down to discern my own energy. I knew I was afraid. I knew that's why I got angry. But what parts of my anger and my efforts were from fear, but wanting Archer's well-being? And what parts of my anger were to put staff in their place when I felt they let us down? And my deepest fear is that we would lose this war if they were not competent. I said in Our Father that Archer would rest comfortably and that his lungs would drain. I said a Hail Mary that I would relax and be more forgiving of staff. We needed them to win these battles and we needed to do it together. When I opened up my eyes, everything was still quiet in the room. I looked over at the big kids and whispered loudly, how are my troops doing? Petey gave me a thumbs up. I looked at my phone again. The generosity in the words of those outside the hospital texting me was so beautiful, almost overwhelming. <laughs> it reminded me of like love letters from home sent to the front lines. It did. I felt like I was in battle mode and I didn't want to be. I struggled to keep up with the texts, but I realized I felt pretty wiped out. I knew everyone wanted an update. Of course they did. I was also so grateful to those who didn't ask, but I wanted to give them one. I did, but I just couldn't send one because I felt that as soon as I sent something, it would then change. Everything was changing so fast. I couldn't keep up. 
and I felt numb again. The wild panic in Archer's eyes haunted me. Please, Mother Mary, Mother of God, please let Archer feel your loving arms around him. Oh, please. And please wrap them around me and please let me feel them. I got up to walk out into the hallway for some fresh air or at least different air. I needed to walk so I could think. On my way across the unit, a nurse intercepted me in the hallway. She was not one of our nurses. I didn't recognize her. She put her hand up over her mouth like she was trying to keep her voice down, but she clearly wanted to tell me something like a secret. Sure enough, she said, I'm not supposed to tell you, but are you aware of the news reports about your son? I was thrown off. No, I said. What do you mean? And she tittled. The hospital said you don't want to be notified, but we see you back and forth talking to all these people, making all these phone calls. What do you mean I don't want to be notified? I want to be notified about everything. Her eyebrows raised a little, and she leaned in a little closer, kind of eager to tell me more. There are newspaper articles all the way from down there in Cape May, up the coast and up to here. He's even in the Atlantic City press. She tattled as if that were a big deal. I guess I must have had a strange look on my face as she hissed. Yeah, the hospital told them you had no comment. It's standard hospital policy, but we figured you probably didn't know because you're always here, but you might want to know. I was sort of stunned for a moment. And she continued, yeah, we were talking and we didn't think you'd like that. And then I said, can you get me a copy? And she replied, mm, I'm not supposed to, but I'll try. And she looked around and turned on her heels and left. Why did she have her hand up over her mouth? I'm getting tired of not being told what's going on. I walked down the hallway and I felt a little phased. I was stunned by her, by what she said. And I felt watched. But also, strangely, as if I had a friend somewhere in the hospital. But it clicked. What she said made sense to me. So that's how those outside people we didn't know and who were not hospital employees, as best we could tell, who came into Archer's room yesterday, knew we were even there. A newspaper article. Unbelievable. I wonder how those people got in here when they make us 
pass through all kinds of hoops, security guards, show photo ID, have our name on an approved list. They give us a badge and they make everyone wait in the waiting room until they decide like the way they made Archer's friends and my sister wait. I just don't understand this place. My Lord. I walked around outside the large donut, the circular floor plan of the intensive care unit trauma with all the computers and medical offices on the inside hole. I now understood what they were doing inside the donut hole on all those computers. They were monitoring the rooms, including ours. That explains how that team of male nurses or techs or whoever they were in blue and green hospital scrubs came running in yesterday to paddle the heck out of Archer when his first lung collapsed. And how that team of six nurses came rushing in today to turn and reposition Archer and give him oxygen when he was in such distress. I stopped to watch them at their monitors every few yards as I continued walking the large hallways. I also stopped to look in any empty room to see what was in there. And I could see they were not all alike. And I saw there were some random metal single chairs in some, looking like they were not part of the regular furniture. I felt like maybe I was beginning to understand a little bit of how some things worked around here. I felt like I needed a tactical plan. And I was lost in thought as I shuffled back to Archer's room. Kathy Giannoskoli, my friend and neighbor who was bringing us subs for lunch, came down the hall quickly just as I was approaching Archer's room. She said rather urgently, Louise, and she seemed a little bit out of breath. What? Do you know what she told me? She said, did you see your Hispanic friend on his way out? I was really caught off guard and must have looked confused. Louise, she reminded me, the Hispanic man, the Jehovah's Witness, she said. The Jehovah's Witness? I asked. I was confused. He was looking for you, she continued. I was in the family waiting room, and he was in there too. You know, the Hispanic man. I told him I brought lunch for Archer's family. He told me all about how you tried to help his family. He asked where you were. He asked if he could pray over Archer. Oh, of course I knew whom she was talking about now, the Hispanic family. But I was still confused. I thought I'd never see them again after I had asked about them and learned that their family member had passed away or didn't make it or had been discharged, as the nurse had told me. I thought they were gone forever. I didn't understand how he was there with Archer. But here's an excerpt of an interview with Kathy Giannoskoli that helped me piece it together all these years later. Just let me self 
Oh, yeah, totally. So, so uh, right, we, we got to talking, and he said, oh, he was very familiar with Archer and what was going on, and he said, do you think it would be okay if I prayed over him? And that's, I said, let me check. And that's when I, I guess it was Paula and Pete were there. I went in to talk to Paula and Pete. Um, and then I kind of went and they said yes. And we were over on it for the people in there. So I stepped out, but I was able just to be right outside the door. I didn't have to go then. The nurses, I they knew what was going on, and they weren't really enforcing it so much at the moment. Yeah. So, you know, he, he intoned God, and he asked for his help healing this young man, and they were maybe about two minutes at the most, I would say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he had a booming voice, and it was coming from his heart, and in a big way. I seem to remember that he was touching Archer. Uh, his, I think his forehead. Uh, I, I think just his forehead. I don't know. I don't remember if touched. Maybe he touched him, but I think he laid his hand over Archer's forehead. Uh huh. Yeah, laid his hands on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, how did you learn that he was a Jehovah's Witness? He told me. Amazing. I am just blown away at this very second that you are telling me that. You know, when he prayed over Archer, did he did he say Jehovah or did he say God? Because I don't know how a Jehovah's Witness prays. He said, Senor, the Lord. Oh, Senor, the Lord. He was rocking the walls in there. <laughs> he was rocking the walls. Wow. Well, it's, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Wow. Ask and he was basically asking God for His help in healing Absolutely. Arthur. Yeah, and that's exactly what he was asking for. Yep. Wow! Oh my goodness! I would love, love, love someday to meet him again. So the Hispanic man I've told you about was a Jehovah's Witness. Hmm. I had not previously met or personally known a Jehovah's Witness. I would love to meet him again someday. I felt like we had a connection, that we were friends for those brief two days. Have you ever had that kind of an experience with someone 
where you were just attracted to them for no known reason exactly, but you were, and it was mutual. And you sort of clicked like your hearts met, like you already knew each other. That's how it was, at least for me. Some of my friendships have started that way too, with both men and women. And some of those friendships were fleeting. Circumstantial, you know, where we were at summer camp, at a retreat or a conference, or on a parent school bus ride. But they were memorable. And I bet if we met again, we'd click again and feel that friendship connection. I bet you might have some of those experiences as well. They're nice, like old souls meeting again. Oh, yes, I recall him vividly. To this day, he was memorable. You know, when I started writing this story and interviewing those behind the scenes, I looked for him. I did. Actually, I've looked high and low calling different Jehovah's Witness kingdom halls in New Jersey. I didn't know they were called that, but that is how they refer to their places of worship. And they have congregations. And I've learned that they often have more than one congregation in one kingdom hall, and that it is not uncommon to have an English-speaking congregation and an Hispanic-speaking congregation in one kingdom hall. I even called their national office in New York, which they call their branch, looking for the unidentified but so memorable man whose name I wish I knew. I would very much like to thank him for his prayers over Archer. But what is most memorable is the feeling he stirred in me that what was happening to him and his family, not able to be all together with their very injured loved one when he was dying, was wrong to separate them like that. And they felt helpless and didn't speak English or understand this hospital and needed a voice. And it occurred to me that as Archer's lungs deteriorated, I felt helpless. And what Kathy G told me in the hallway that that man did for our son Archer was like the hug I needed. It's like he was sent as my fortification on the front line. And it really lifted me up. Just when I felt like I was having to dig the bunkers, I needed that. You know, I have wondered from time to time how he and his family have fared since their battle and loss. Oh, they were in such distress. And he was such a rock. And to learn he had such deep and big faith. Wow. 
I love learning about others' faith and their faith traditions. I really do. There are so many ways to live the love shown to us by the Creator. Each time I learn about a new cultural expression of faith in the One, the Source, who made everything good, who made everything with a purpose, so much of which is still a mystery, even in science, it makes me feel more and more connected, deeply connected to humanity and to God. How grand is the divine master of all creation to create so much diversity and interconnectedness. I've imagined what unity would look like and feel like. Sometimes I feel like I get glimpses I am so grateful to be alive, to have this awareness and experience of others. Yes, for me, the more expansive I feel I can cast my love for others, the deeper I know God is there for me and is everywhere and is there for everyone. It's like that for me. Is it like that for you? I mean, it's sort of like the more I understand and experience others, the clearer I get of who I am and what I believe. And it strengthens my faith, my Catholic faith. It's a strength that allows me to be more open because I am rooted. Do you experience things like that too? The more you can walk in the experience of another, the more, I don't know, the more compassionate you become. And crazy enough, the more able you are to give because it stirs a desire to do something good for others. Yeah, I think that's what it does. It stirs a desire for unity and goodness for all. Well, as for the Hispanic family, any person who believes in a force greater than they are that is benevolent, loving, and capable of healing it is easy for me to resonate with them. I was so drawn to them. And now I know they are Jehovah's Witnesses. Hmm. It was back to the trenches, and all I wanted was healing for Archer. I hope that believer's fervent prayers that rocked the hospital walls also rocked the heavens to mi senor, who is always listening. I looked over at Archer, still sleeping. I looked at Paula and Pete, still sitting on either side of his bed, still quiet, 
uncomfortably quiet. Archer is going to be all right, Lord, right? Please, please, dear God, spare him pain, spare him fear. And please give Archer the steadfastness to remain calm so his lungs can inflate on their own. And please give the staff wisdom to know what they're doing and to open their hearts to be careful. And please give me wisdom to know what to do. I leaned up against the wall, intending to send a quick text message to my sister and Dewey back in Cape May about what to expect as I thought they were probably on their way to the hospital. There were so many others I wanted to respond to as well with information. Well, I'll begin to close for now, but I thought I'd share something kind of silly. You know what I realized in that moment as I looked at my phone? I realized I could cut and paste. It was so obvious, but I hadn't thought about it before. I had been responding to each text individually because I wanted to stay connected to every single person texting me. After all, they were taking the time to text me and they were probably on vacation. I cared a lot about every single person who called or texted. Even those who sent questions, I just didn't have time to respond to. There was a part of me, my head, that knew we were in a stressful, high-stakes, time-sensitive situation. And there was a part of me, my heart, that desired to stay connected to all the wonderful people texting. And a part of me, my gut, that knew I needed to keep them apprised of our situation so that we could stay connected. I wanted to give them accurate information so there would not be mixed messages. I felt from a couple of the texts that there already were some. Yeah, people needed information to stay connected, and I needed every person, every member of the troops. I was getting very clear about that. People also need good information right? I mean, like a good intelligence officer. When the communication channels dry up or give incomplete or inaccurate information, the coordinated effort suffers. Heck, for that matter, like a good marriage too. When the shared information channels dry up, so does the emotional connection. I know both from my mediation practice. So what the heck, I thought, we're all in this together. I began cutting and pasting to all my friends and the earlier text messengers who had sent me anything. I sent them what I'd sent to my siblings. But call it my ego, call it my Emily Post upbringing from my mom, but the cut and paste method I had thought was so brilliant felt impersonal. I didn't want people important to me to think they were getting a form letter 
So what I began to do was keep the information cut and paste, but personalize each one, like adding their name at the beginning. As you know, how precious and personal a name is to me. Or I would add something relevant to them at the end of each text. I don't know. I, I just never, ever wanted anyone to feel something impersonal came from me. I remember having this conversation with myself as I started copying and pasting in the quiet moment in the hospital room. Louise, you are doing this out of pure pride. The kind you fight a lot, the bad kind, wanting every interaction to be personalized. And yes, that is true. But, or, and, the deeper truth is that I do want every interaction to be personalized. I have always had a deep desire to connect with people, to know them, to see them. Like the way Archer's friends really saw him earlier today. I realized, as if for the first time, that as I sent those updates full of the reality and rawness of this and my truth and my pleas for their prayers, that I was perhaps for the first time in my life allowing people to see me, all of me. I was just laying it out there, everything, unvarnished. I was not sure why, I just was. We were so very vulnerable. There was no time for editing or polishing or worrying about how others might take it or how it might land or how it might look. My family needed help. I needed help. Archer needed a lot of help. I wasn't sure, but it felt like we were preparing for a battle to save Archer's life. The only way for us to get the help we really needed was in a cooperative effort. And for the troops back home to understand what was really going on. We needed support troops. We couldn't do this on our own. Yeah, we were on the front line in the foxhole. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Have you ever felt like you were in a battle for your life or for the life of someone you love, love deeply, or even if it wasn't life or death, it felt that way? Well, if you have, you know, it cuts through all the miscellaneous. It cuts through everything unnecessary. In the chaos, things get real simple. Are you here to help or not? Do you have the expertise we need or not? Do you love me or not? Are we in this together or not? 
Have you ever felt that way? It's very stark and it's very clear. This is part of how we are wired to survive through crisis and through trauma as it unfolds in the beginning. And also, in a high-stakes situation, a crisis too. If you have ever been there, you know intuitively and in your gut that you are very vulnerable. So very, very vulnerable. And that vulnerability makes you dependent on others. And we can either be weak and reject that we are dependent and try to go it alone. Or we can be strong by embracing our dependence and create interdependence with others. And if so, together, we can provide strength for ourselves and to others who are helping us as we impact each other emotionally, positively. It makes us all strong. Have you ever felt totally dependent on others? Totally? You know then how it can go either way, right? If those you are depending on, like medical or legal experts, just give you a bunch of bravado or tough guy stuff, or don't worry, we know, in a situation that will define your life forever, and you feel intuitively or in your gut that there's misalignment, you feel it in your heart, it probably creates a greater feeling of helplessness, right? And it might even force you to, uh, I'll do this by myself because you feel so alone. Yes, responses of others to high stakes that are not fully responsive to the experience itself of helplessness probably force people to close up or feel more helpless. The reality is we really can't do any crisis alone if we're going to survive, especially a medical crisis. The crisis is so much more than just the event or the accident or the injury or the bad medical diagnosis. I mean, it is all those things, but it's the unfolding experience thereafter. If only all of our medical experts and hospital personnel understood this. You know, I've been thinking, I think we need trauma training for all medical personnel. You know, Many people have experienced some form of personal trauma, right? We know that. My sense is 
that medical trauma is also fairly common, but I don't hear much talk about it. Maybe we will begin the talk about medical trauma. Do you think that would be of value? Yes, the injury itself is a trauma. And then there is the entire experience around that injury and caring for that injury and that person and caring for those who are needing to care for that person, both in the hospital and thereafter. Oh, yes, we need a whole army, a trauma healing army in the hospital intensive care unit and outside who understand the medical trauma experience so they can support us when we are in the hospital and when we think we're on the battlefield and who can support us with their trauma-informed responses of kindness and awareness so as not to add to the trauma experience. And if we're lucky, one kind, knowledgeable, trauma-informed person in a hospital might help us, each family, begin to integrate our experience into a healing journey, if we're lucky, by laying the seeds for the inner work we will need to do later to be whole again. Do you see it that way too? We don't want to just live and get by, do we? No. We want to live fully. Yes, we need trauma care teams who understand this. We really do. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had trauma-informed hospitals and courses for nurses and doctors and for medical school residents, and not just four hours in a whole semester, but an entire course on medical trauma and trauma healing as part of the core curriculum and trauma healing modules integrated into each medical specialty thereafter. And do you know why else it is so important to have this education? Because the nurses and doctors working in intensive care units and trauma centers, they are impacted by the patient's trauma experiences too. Oh, yes, they need to understand as much for the patients and their families as for themselves. They do. It's no wonder nurses and doctors respond with clinical distance. It's the only way they know to protect themselves, perhaps, from their own crumbling, their own broken hearts. That's what I believe. Oh, but there's such another way, a loving and more powerful way, other than clinical distancing, to respond to medical trauma. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if every hospital had trauma healing teams? I think trauma advocacy and healing teams could change the 
face of the practice of emergency medicine. And if you like the idea of helping to lift up greater awareness of medical trauma and healing, maybe you might consider reaching out to someone you know who was in an intensive care unit recently or even quite a while ago and asking them, I was wondering if I could ask you about your experience when you were in an intensive care unit. I want to learn from you what it was like. While we're waiting on medical schools to transform their curricula, we can make a difference. If we don't want the experience of a medical trauma to break us or the experience of a medical trauma that then produces other traumas, so it then becomes multiple traumas, we can begin the dialogue. Let's all send a special intention for healing for all the families who have been in or experienced an intensive care unit or a trauma unit at a hospital for any reason, for their trauma sufferings now or their past trauma sufferings that are still causing them and others pain in their lives. And let's send a special intention for hope and resiliency for those families who have had a child or a family member in an ICU with a spinal cord injury. And for those of you listening whose lives are steady and have a regular rhythm, at least today, let us take a breath together and imagine and feel the steadiness of your life energy. And now let's send our collective breath of that steady energy out to someone in an ICU with a spinal cord injury. Just imagine them. Someone who is not able to breathe right at this moment and who is not sure of living. Let's send our breath of life to them. There is a bounty of steady, good energy to cultivate and share. And as we close for now, for those of you who live with a spinal cord injury that happened perhaps when you were a young man or a woman who know what it is like to experience being trapped in your body and not able to breathe or move on your own. We send you our amazement at your endurance, your courage, your incredibleness. Let us be grateful as we imagine your breath and the example you give to us of living a full life with a desire to live and living into what is possible. Life is so precious. 
sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Blink of an Eye is supported and sponsored by the DeSatnik Foundation. The DeSatnik Foundation is committed to encouraging spinal cord injury victims in their recovery by providing education, promoting awareness, helping families cope both financially and emotionally, and networking with other spinal cord injury foundations to enhance support. The objectives of the Foundation are accomplished through meetings, seminars, and conferences that support our mission, literature and publications that emphasize spinal cord injury awareness, and fundraising efforts designed to raise money for programs and victims, concentrating our efforts primarily on individuals who reside in Atlantic, Cape May, Cumberland, Ocean, and Monmouth counties in New Jersey. The Foundation hosts two fundraising events annually, a midwinter comedy show in Cape May and the Cape to Cape Paddleboard event. We also partner with Jesse Blauer and the Life Rolls On Foundation to host They Will Surf Again, an adaptive surfing program on the beaches of Wildwood, New Jersey. Donations to our nonprofit can be made via PayPal on desatnikfoundation.org. That's D-E-S-A-T-N-I-C-K foundation.org. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Semph directly, louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. She would love to hear from you.